sensation and bounds help you to stimulate around the eyes. Greatest and greatest wellness trends, treatments, and experience. Work back Magnesium is naturally found in foods like. This is the Well and Good podcast. Tune in to find the wellness that fits your frequency. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly... Patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be Continued at scs.georgetown.com. Edu podcast. Many of us are on a journey to living and leading a healthier life. But in pursuit of this healthier life, we might fixate on working out more, eating well, but it's vital to acknowledge the detrimental impacts diet culture might have on this process. I'm director of podcast Taylor Camille, and today we're in conversation with someone who has firsthand experience with how the pursuit of a healthier life can take hold of our lives and our living. And so she's written a book about it. We're in conversation with Christy Harrison, registered dietitian, certified intuitive eating counselor, and journalist, whose professional journey is devoted to unraveling the complex connections between wellness and diet culture. Her latest book, The Wellness Trap, offers a deeper look at how to break free from harmful societal expectations like diet culture and lean into non-diet approaches like intuitive eating, which ask us only to be in touch with what our bodies are signaling and make food choices accordingly. Basically, if you feel hungry, check in with that feeling and then eat. We've got more on that on site and in this episode and hope this conversation gives you the insight you need to feel good in your body despite the overwhelming influence of messaging that derails our efforts of living a fulfilling life. So I'm Christy. I am a registered dietitian, certified intuitive eating counselor and journalist, and I have two podcasts now. I'm talking to you actually on the, on the day my second podcast just launched called Rethinking Wellness, um, and, and I'm the author of two books, Anti-Diet and uh, The Wellness Trap, which will be out on April 25th. Congratulations. Um, and And so... 
I wanted to ask if you could share with us how you first became involved in the wellness space and how your experience with chronic illness informed your journey. I think your new book is, you know, delving into this area of how we all fall into wellness. Yeah. Yeah. I think the new book is very personal to me for that reason, because I first got involved in the wellness space through my own chronic illness journey, I suppose. Well, you know, it's interesting the the, the links between diet culture and wellness culture, right? They're so intertwined in our society, I think. And my experience was that I was an intuitive eater. I was like very fortunate and privileged to be able to maintain my intuitive eating skills all throughout childhood and adolescence. And, you know, part of that was like my family always had enough to eat. We weren't food insecure. So I didn't have that piece kind of taking me away from my internal cues. And then I also was always in a thinner body. And so nobody commented saying I needed to lose weight. If anything, it was like my appetite was praised. I was sort of, you know, marveled at for my ability to eat and not gain weight and stuff. So I was just insulated from all of that. And I think allowed to just keep an intuitive relationship with food. But when I went away to college and especially, um, you know, the first couple of years of college were fine, but then I went away to study abroad my junior year. I went to Paris, which was lovely in so many ways. But one of the ways in which it wasn't so lovely is that France is a pretty diet culture centric place. And, you know, the thin ideal, I think, is very strong there. And I also happened to start a new birth control pill when I went there, gained some weight and suddenly was outgrowing all my clothes and like just sort of was like, what is happening to my body? People were commenting. I wasn't feeling good in my skin. And of course, like even though I had been insulated from diet culture my whole life, all the messages that I had gotten about weight loss and body size and everything just came you know, right up. It was like, like Tinder to be, to be sparked by a match. And it just caught fire into what became very disordered eating very quickly. And so I tried to lose weight. I started counting calories. I started doing diets and, you know, then over-exercising and it turned into what I now recognize was an undiagnosed eating disorder. But at the time I just thought, you know, I was being really quote unquote good. And then somehow I was also just binging at night and, you know, losing control and feeling really terrible about myself and then compensating by restricting and over-exercising and kind of doing the whole thing again. And so I was very much in that restrict binge cycle for a number of years. But I think, you know, around the age of 21 was when it really really took off. And at that point, I, you know, several months in, I stopped getting my period. I started having a lot of fatigue and brain fog and difficulty concentrating and um, weakness, you know, muscle soreness, all of these things that are sort of um, nebulous kinds of symptoms, you know, headaches, like things that could be the result of so many different causes. But for me, I now see in hindsight, it was all directly linked to my disordered eating. And then also to a couple of chronic illnesses that emerged around that time. But I can't help but wonder how much the disordered eating and restrictive eating in particular uh, helped to trigger that and exacerbate the, the symptoms as well. Because I was diagnosed with Hashimoto's thyroiditis and that runs in my family. So I kind of knew that I had that risk and I was being tested for that, but it was never sometimes with thyroid levels, you have to be tested again and again to kind of catch it at a low. Sometimes it ebbs and flows. And so they were testing me for that. And, you know, that did end up being one of the factors at play in my fatigue and, you know, dry skin and 
dry hair and stuff like that. But the rest of it wasn't really explained by that diagnosis, even when I got the Hashimoto's diagnosis. And so I kept going from doctor to doctor. I was working with an endocrinologist, working with, you know, several primary care physicians and had new symptoms emerging all the time. A lot of digestive disorders, uh, digestive symptoms coming up that, you know, again, I was diagnosed with gastroesophageal reflux disease. I was diagnosed with IBS, but like it didn't really capture like everything that was going on. There wasn't one diagnosis that sort of explained all the other nebulous symptoms. And so like many people, I think, who go through this type of thing, I started down the rabbit hole on the internet, searching for help, found myself in these alternative medicine spaces, was also surrounded in my life with some friends and colleagues who were also really into alternative medicine. At the time, I was early in my career as a journalist and worked at a environmental magazine and was focusing a lot on food and health and, you know, eco-friendly alternative kind of topics, one of which was like naturopathy or quote unquote natural medicine. And so I definitely got interested in that sort of thing. I was looking for providers who were holistic, who were going to do more than just kind of the standard testing. Like many people, I felt really sort of disillusioned and let down by the conventional healthcare system at the time too, because doctors weren't getting what was wrong with me or giving me some sort of clear diagnosis. It was like, well, you have the Hashimoto's, but we don't really know why all these other things are happening. And, you know, you have the IBS and the GERD, but we don't really know why you're continuing to, you know, have these other symptoms or whatever. So I think I was really in a space where I was ripe for misinformation about wellness to to capture my attention and to try new things that were not supported by good evidence and that weren't mm -hmm. really effective for me and that were actually harmful. But I didn't know it at the time and I was so desperate for help and not really getting good guidance from my care team that I was I was susceptible to that. Yeah, absolutely. And that kind of lends to the next question I wanted to ask you, which is, you know, there's so many conflicting messages when it comes to wellness. And I think we at Well and Good tried to like sift through all of this information and provide something for our audience that is trustworthy and that is backed up or, you know, from personal experience. So I just wondered, how are you kind of sorting through the information and how have you along the way defined wellness on your own terms without all the influx of... <laughs> whoever and their opinions. Yeah, it's so it's so tricky, right? And I think it takes a lot for each person to sort of come to that for themselves. For me, I think I'm someone who really values like information and communication. You know, I started out as a journalist, as I said, and I started to specialize in health and wellness reporting and food as well. I was really into food, but like from a sustainability and food politics lens and health and nutrition. And I ended up going back to school as well. I continued freelancing kind of the whole time, but I went back to school to become a dietitian and specialize in public health nutrition to try to really get my head around like the science and the evidence on what was the right way to eat, you know, at the time, quote unquote, right way was still kind of how I thought about it. Right. Um, <laughs> how could I heal myself? How could I help other people heal and help end what I saw at the time was the quote unquote obesity epidemic, which I now know is a, is a misnomer and really sort of a fraught concept. But at the time I was really steeped in diet and wellness culture and thought that was the right path. And really wanted to model myself on like Michael Pollan and Marion Nessel and, you know, these people that I, I really looked up to in food and wellness journalism. 
And it was just sort of this grace really of, of figuring out that I had disordered eating of my own, of stumbling across the book, intuitive eating and bringing that work into psychotherapy with me and getting some really good support from a psychotherapist around healing my relationship, not just with food, but with myself, starting to have more compassion for myself. And then, you know, starting to see like in my work as a, a nutritionist and then a dietitian, I was working with people in the traditional weight paradigm, this sort of model of where like nominally all foods fit, but in practice, it's like, well, these are the good foods and these are the bad foods. You know, it sort of lends itself to that black and white thinking, even if officially it's not supposed to be that way. And right. I was starting to see that the people who are really my like, quote unquote, star students or star clients were the ones who were doing a lot of things that I had done in my really disordered eating days and feeling like, oh, okay, I don't want to be sending people down that road. Like these folks are getting kind of obsessive about it. You know, what's up with that? Basically kind of feeling this cognitive dissonance. Like here's how I'm eating. Here's how I've healed. Here's what I've been conditioned to teach other people. And here's how I'm seeing it kind of go awry for many people, you know, and through that started to specialize in disordered eating and eating disorders and um, really came to see that intuitive eating was important to aim for, for, for everyone, for prevention of eating disorders and disordered eating, not to focus in this, you know, diet culture paradigm of telling people what to eat or avoid, but more thinking about how people can, you know, have a positive relationship with food. And I think it was through that and through my research, taking research methods classes, learning how to see which studies were really well supported and what which you know ideas had good evidence behind them and which didn't and then a lot of clients started coming to me saying i have adrenal fatigue or i have leaky gut or i have candida and you know my functional medicine doctor or my naturopath or um my acupuncturist or my chiropractor told me to do this and you know now it's my relationship with food is all messed up how can i follow this diet that i need to follow without having a messed up relationship with food and i think at first i started looking into these things in good faith by being like okay well let's look at the evidence behind this just to make sure it's well supported and we can go from there in terms of like helping you do the things you need to do. And then when I started looking to the evidence, I realized this really is not well supported at all. In some cases, these supposed conditions people had been diagnosed with don't even really exist and maybe are misnomers for something else that's really going on. Not that the symptoms don't exist or that people aren't suffering because they are, but these things are being misdiagnosed and mislabeled. And then the prescriptions that are being given are these really restrictive diets and, you know, intense supplement regimens. And in some cases, other therapies that are really unproven and potentially harmful. And so just starting to see that connection and starting to see also how many people with eating disorders struggle with orthorexia, which is obsession with quote unquote healthy eating and how wellness culture really plays right into that. All of that, I think, started to make me focus more on wellness specifically and the nexus of wellness culture and diet culture. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Yeah. And that nexus, I think it's can be super dangerous how intertwined 
they almost seem, right? Like wellness and diet culture aren't equals. And so I just wondered, you know, how you in your work have been able to kind of untangle these concepts because I think so often diet culture is framed as a as a path to to wellness. Um, Mm -hmm. And so how can we kind of separate the two? Interestingly, I talk about in the book, the the term wellness, you know, as an antonym for illness has been around since like the 1600s or something. But Mm -hmm. um, it first started to be used in this in this new way, in the sense of like a pursuit unto itself um, in the late 1950s and early 1960s. And in the writings of Halbert Dunn, a public health researcher who really came up with the concept, it was actually viewed in a much more holistic sense than it is today, I think, in many in many circles. Like, it was much more seen as what I would call well-being, where it's, you know, mm-hmm. looking at the sort of emotional, social, psychological, economic, like these kind of conditions of our lives and how that can support well-being. And looking at, you know, interconnectedness between people and stress management and stuff like that. It's a movement that is catching on all over the country among doctors, nurses, and others concerned with medical care. Wellness is really the ultimate in something called self-care, in which patients are taught to diagnose common illnesses and, where possible, to treat themselves. More than that, it is a positive approach to health, what one doctor calls recognizing that health is not simply the absence of disease. Whereas the 70s iteration of that, it was it was taking that work and sort of building on it, but it was bringing in a lot of the counterculture ideas about demonizing processed foods and sort of going back to the land, like all of that stuff that that emerged in the 60s, you know, late 60s, started to become really infused and tied up with the concept of wellness. And I think although there are some great things about that movement, of course, I think there's some really problematic things too, like the demonization of so-called processed foods, the lionization of so-called whole foods, and the sort of sense that one is impure or doing things wrong or badly if they eat quote-unquote processed foods. Similarly, the lionization of healing practices that are seen to be ancient and quote-unquote natural from um, quote-unquote Eastern traditions, even if that's not really true, right? Even if those practices are being taken and sort of stripped for parts or implemented in ways that are not um, really true to the the heart of the practice, there's a lot of cultural appropriation that happens in wellness, I think, to this day, of course, but even back then. And I think, you know, that also came in very early on in the the conception of wellness. And so now we have this Mm -hmm. space where wellness culture really is so intertwined with diet culture in so many ways. And I think there are people and organizations out there, some some of whom are looking at wellness in a different way and a, a more truly holistic sense in a sense that maybe is more aligned with true well-being. But I think that's unfortunately still few and far between. And I think there are a lot of places and influencers and spaces online that, and especially on social media, that are just rife with mis- and disinformation, mm-hmm. really potentially harmful diet advice, supplement regimens, these things that are sort of being pushed on people both to optimize themselves and also to heal from chronic health conditions that maybe don't have great treatments and um, 
support in, in conventional medicine. And unfortunately, that can really pull people away from conventional medicine and away from science and um, right. good evidence and down these rabbit holes where people are exposed to even more potentially deadly mis and disinformation like anti-vax or conspiracy theories and things like that. Right. Yeah, it is. It is a lot. I think another thing you will see is that, you know, there's so much health advice about not just our health, but like the supplements that are made available and they may or may not be reliable or they might not be safe. What are some things that you've kind of used to to help, I guess, verify the advice or the products that you see as you're scrolling? Yeah. So there's a couple of things. One is that I actually limit my scrolling. I, I have taken a huge step back from social media in recent years, and it's been amazing for my mental health. I have found that it's like has a has had a really net positive benefit to my life to not be as involved with social media, even though I still have, you know, large audiences on some platforms and I occasionally pop in to post things, but I don't use it in a way to take in content. Um, and I'll do, I'll occasionally, yeah. you know, look into certain things for research. I definitely had to spend a lot of time on social media for my book, but I didn't use my own account. I didn't like allow the algorithm to, you know, suck me in in that way. And I, I search for things mm-hmm. in a targeted way. I don't scroll, but another, you know, separate from that, like if I am, looking at social media or if I am looking at other internet content and sort of like trying to consider whether it's worthwhile or not, there's a few things that I, I like to do. One is called uh, the SIF check, which I find really helpful. It's not, it's not my invention. It's a, a researcher on media literacy and, and disinformation who coined this term, this notion of SIFT, which is um, stop, investigate the source, find better coverage and trace claims, quotes, and Mm. other information back to the original source. And so, you know, when you think about that for Mm. a social media post, right, stop kind of just means like take a pause, don't click follow or subscribe, don't click buy in the moment, don't click share, you know, right? It's just kind of take a pause before you Mm -hmm. do any of that stuff um, and investigate. So see what this source is all about, right? Is this someone with recognized credentials in the health and wellness space? Is this someone with more alternative credentials? Is this someone with no credentials? Is this someone who's recognized pretty widely as a source of mis and disinformation, right? If you look at sort of reputable sources and you see that, you know, immediately this source is being labeled as problematic, okay, that's something to consider, right? Reputable, right, is a is a slippery term in this day and age because, so much of media has been right. denigrated as fake news. There's so much kind of politicization of facts and truth. And so it can be hard to, you know, especially if you've been steeped in this. You can buy your blue check mark right. now. Oh my God. It's just, it's just a yeah. mess. Yeah. It's yeah. Difficult. And so I think, mm-hmm. you know, another aspect of this, right, is like finding sources you trust. The F in SIFT, I think, is helpful, right? Like finding mm-hmm. sources that you can go to preemptively rather than scrolling through and having things like pop up and just get fed to you because the algorithms on social media are designed to kind of get more and more extreme. The, the algorithms are designed to maximize engagement, to keep you on the platform for as long as possible so they can serve you ads because that's how they make how they make their money. And so 
there has been, you know, documented evidence now the last couple of years of, of both Instagram and TikTok and certainly other platforms as well, radicalizing people by sort of leading them from things that are relatively innocuous into things that are really extreme. And in the health and wellness space, this happens with people who like content related to or even just view content related to weight loss, quote unquote, healthy eating, nutrition in general, you know, those sorts of posts, liking and viewing those can then pretty quickly lead people down this path to more extreme diet content, pro-anorexia content, right? Pro-eating disorder content. And so obviously that's incredibly mm-hmm. problematic. And so I think, you know, taking yourself out of that um, rabbit hole or that sort of that space where you can get pulled in that more extreme direction, I think is really important. I think another big thing is like checking in with yourself about how different sources of information make you feel, right? Is something creating a lot of fear and anxiety in you? Like, oh my God, I did the wrong thing and now I'm at risk and I have to buy this detox plan to correct the, the problems that my taking a vaccine or eating the wrong way or taking pharmaceuticals has caused to my body, right? Like if that's the case and if you're feeling a lot of that sort of pressure and anxiety, that's a good sign that perhaps you're in the presence of something that's trying to manipulate you. Not necessarily, you know, right? Because there are things that can provoke strong emotion that in fact are true. And so I think you know, verifying the information with reputable sources, seeing are multiple newspapers covering this issue. Is this really a thing that's that's happening? So I think just being a, a critical consumer as much as possible of content related to health and wellness, I think is really important, but not so critical that you tip over into conspiracy theories around like, well, everything is rigged and everyone is, you know, big pharma is poisoning people for profit and blah, 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 you know, and all the doctors and, you know, all MDs are in on it and all because that's really not actually supported by evidence and that's not really critical thinking. That's actually kind of, you know, thinking that is often manipulated, right? Like these sources will prey on people who are in a vulnerable state and, you know, spin these stories that evoke strong emotions and that sound plausible and would seem to explain a lot of stuff that you know, goes on in people's lives and maybe feels like it's going wrong and sort of leads people down these paths of like extreme anxiety and isn't helpful in the long run. So I think it's, it's really, it's a really tough landscape out there to navigate. I think wellness culture is some of the rockiest terrain we have in terms of information and just learning to be discerning, but I think also like calming your nervous system and tuning into kind of how different things are making you feel before you act and before you go further down a path can be really helpful. Yeah, definitely. I wanted to get into the all natural and clean debate. I know that many consumers are looking for these labels, all natural or clean when shopping, but they can be misleading and they can be they can be false. They can give us a false sense of security. Can you shed some light on that process? What goes into these labels and what we should be aware of when we see them? Yeah. So I think, you know, clean and natural are such unregulated labels, right? They don't actually mean anything. They don't have any sort of regulation on on where you can use them and how. And and they're also like these buzzwords now in, in wellness culture, right? You care about what goes on your skin. You care about ingredients, your health, the world around you. You want natural, effective beauty products. Natural, everybody wants the natural thing because it feels like it's 
the alternative to something that is quote unquote processed, which has been demonized or things that are maybe harsher, right? Like medications, pharmaceuticals are seen as these sort of harsh interventions. And in many cases, they do have a lot of side effects, right? And, you know, personally, I've experienced this and I know many of my clients have too, where the side effects of restricting your diet to try to heal or um, manage a chronic illness, a chronic health condition, those side effects are far worse in the long run for many people than the side effects perhaps of taking medication, right? In in my case, one of my conditions, Hashimoto's thyroiditis, I don't really have any side effects from the medication. And so, you know, trying to heal it, quote unquote, naturally, the harmful effects of that by far outweighed any effects of taking the medication because there, really there were no harmful effects of that. Supplements are not, they're barely regulated. In the U.S., there's no, in fact, it's illegal for the FDA to regulate them to do testing for safety and efficacy before they go to market. They can only be pulled from the market afterwards if there's overwhelming evidence of lack of safety, right? It has to be a certain critical mass for the FDA to even necessarily investigate it because they just have limited resources to do that. And so, you know, I think it's important to look at that critically and to look at any, you know, recommendations for supplements or diets as things with potentially very high costs, very high side effects, costs in terms of economic as well as mental well-being and, and physical well-being side effects. And not to get sort of pulled in by this, the lure of, oh, it's natural. So how harm, harmful could it be, right? It's natural. So, you know, I might as well try. There's really, there's really no harm in trying. Actually, there can be significant harm in trying. And so that's something that I think people just need to consider. Having been through a lot of chronic illness um, journeys myself, right, to, to the journey to get diagnosed for many different things, I know it's such a slog and such a process and it can feel so demoralizing when you don't have you know, providers who get it. The answer yeah. for the solution. And you're just yeah. suffering and it's like, well, maybe this is how it is forever, <laughs> right? There's, it's like terrifying in some cases. And so yeah. I think if you can try to hang on through that and not get pulled in by the like, well, I'm feeling so bad now, What? how much worse could it get? But instead, you know, just try as diligently as you can, as much as you can, given your circumstances, which I know not everyone has great access to care, but, you know, to whatever extent that you can based on the insurance that you have or the economic situation that you're in, to try to find providers who are empathetic, who take you seriously, and who are evidence-based and, you know, not going to send you on these sort of wild goose chases with supplements and restrictive diets and all the rest. Right. Yep. And then the last question that really to try to like future cast, I guess, if we will, but mm -hmm. we talked about intuitive eating, we talked about anti-diet culture and how these have really become mainstream concepts over the past, I don't know, a few handful of years. And I just wanted to know, you know, what are you most hopeful for in the future? Where do you kind of think we stand in this moment uh, in wellness? And what are you, what are you forecasting, Christy? <laughs> Mm, that's a that's an interesting question. Yeah. I feel like I I tend to get in on things when it's when it's really hard and when it feels like a slog to like get it into mainstream consciousness, but I'm actually very hopeful at how critical people are of diet culture and increasingly wellness culture now too and how people are starting to see the connections between them and starting to see the 
the potential harms of social media, that there are people who are, you know, speaking out about mis and disinformation and, you know, the ways in which wellness culture can slide into conspiracism that might have kind of bought into some aspects of like the diet diet culture version of wellness previously, but are starting to now see the ways that that is harmful. So I think that there is hope. I just, my caution for everyone, I think around this is like that there are always going to be unfortunately bad actors who want to capitalize on people's pain um, and, you know, industries that need to continue, that need to like keep making money and capitalism requires constant growth. And so I think that there are going to be a lot of co-optations and efforts to like, if if it's like we sort of move in mass from wellness to well-being as being the metric, then there are going to be a lot of players that try to capitalize on well-being and, you know, f- sell it in a way that's not necessarily good for people's well-being. So I think it's always important to look at things um, critically, but again, not so much so that you tip into conspiracism of like everybody's out to get you all the time because it's not true. Right. Last thing is, what do you hope people take away as they put down wellness trap? What's what's your hope that people step away from after reading Feeling? Mm. I hope people feel curious, empowered, reflective on kind of where they've been in their own path and liberated from some of the confines of the wellness trap. I think it, it is such a trap. It keeps us so like tightly bound up in a lot of ways, you know, feeling like we can't step out of line. We have to always be thinking about the toxins in our food and our environment and the things we put in our skin and, you know, in and around and on our bodies. And that can be such a fraught, like anxiety producing space to live in. And so I hope that in reading the book, I hope that I've conveyed these messages with compassion. I think that's always you know, a, a delicate balance in writing like this where I'm trying to like address misinformation or debunk or pre-bunk things maybe, but also in a way where it's like, I've been there, I get it. Like here are a lot of other people who've been there and who get it telling their stories. And so I hope people come away with that feeling like someone has listened to them or, or sort of gotten what they're going through with compassion and is inviting them to explore other ways of being that are not so bound up and constrained by wellness culture. On today's show, you heard me in conversation with Christy Harrison. This episode was scripted and edited in part by Haley Pascalides and produced by Jen Snyder, Abby Stone, and myself, Taylor Camille, along with many other hands and brains at Well and Good. As always, please don't forget to subscribe, rate, and share. Our theme music was created by Madeline Lakomsky and Matt DiDomenico, and our show art was designed by Jenna Gibson and Karina Masonette.